Hey, everybody. This is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you for tuning in to the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we take the deepest look possible at who we are to try to make our lives and communities better. Today is episode number 16, and I have on Professor Christopher Driscoll, who specializes in understanding the way that our fears about our limitations, our vulnerability, our death, impact the way that we interact with others, specifically with respect to their race. Now, I'm super, super excited. I want to talk as little as possible right now because I want to be able to jump in with Christopher as as soon and as long as possible. Christopher's ideas are very exciting to me because they take fields that are normally very separate and and he ties it all together, right? So it's very common, of course, to study the idea of whiteness and our identity as, as races. It's very common to study that. And it's very common to study our, what I would call our existential needs, right? The kinds of deep, big, scary questions and feelings we have about our existence. It's very rare to tie these two things together. And so I think Christopher has a very uh, unique and important perspective on what, what it means to be human. So I actually, I encountered Christopher's work at this conference that I went to in Denver for Scholars of Religion. Uh, and he was giving a talk about the relationship between uh, uncertain, existential uncertainty in the West uh, and mountaineering, like mountain climbers, and, and was telling tales about Sherpas and mountaineers picking fights with them and working really, really hard to try to climb the tallest mountains. And this culture that we have in adventure sports around uh, triumph and some sort of strange mixture of spiritual experiences in nature and human conquest and the infallibility or what I um, sometimes call the invulnerability of of us, you know, and specifically us uh, and as male, uh, Christopher studies, and also specifically as white people who are, who dream, who are in a position of relative power and who attempt to hold on to that as a means by which to stave off our concerns, right? As a means by which to stave off our death and our limitations and our vulnerability in the world and susceptibility to loss and damnation or whatever kinds of religious themes you want to tie into it. This is the kind of stuff that Christopher does. So um, we probably won't have time to get to the mountaineering today, which is very interesting. Hopefully I'll I'll be able to have him back on. Um, But we will be talking a lot about how this idea of whiteness it came to be, how this idea of whiteness exists and how it interfaces with religion and our ideas about God and the hopes that we put in God end up being, of course, completely unintentionally, very much tied up with violence against other people. You know, like our safety, we hold our safety into our for ourselves at, at, at the expense of others. And often this is uh, happens with respect to various cultures and races and, and what have you. So this is what we'll be talking about today. Um, it's very, it's both existentially and highly politically relevant. Um, so I'm super excited about that. Um, a very quick bio that I, uh, I'm going to read out of Professor Driscoll's most recent book. It's called um, 
White Lies. It's a brilliant book. Uh, Christopher M. Driscoll is a visiting assistant professor at Lehigh University, where he's teaching and research explore race, religion, philosophy, and culture with attention to whiteness, hip-hop, and existentialism and humanism. He is the co-founder co and co-chair of an American Academy of Religion group on hip-hop and religion and a contributing editor to Marginalia in the LA Review of Books. Uh, so that is Professor Christopher Driscoll. He is uh, brilliant, and I'm super excited to have him on. Uh, so without further ado, let's jump right into it. So welcome, Christopher. Hi. 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 How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, it's nice. great to, to be here in conversation with you. Maybe perhaps to kick it off, you can tell us a little bit about what you're working on and, and why. You know, why, why is it important to you? Why do you think it's relevant to the world? Um, I know it's very broad, but. No, no, that's a, a good entry point. So I am currently working on um, four or five different projects that are all, and I can talk about as many or as few of them as we, I guess, have time and interest for, but I'm working on a number of different projects that are all more or less related to questions of uh, contemporary white identity. So I, I work in religion, race, and culture as a kind of uh, elevator catchphrase. Uh, religion, race, and culture is the kind of stuff that I do. And what I'm really interested in is trying to figure out what is um, unique, if anything, about contemporary white identity and contemporary white male identity more specifically. And by contemporary, I'm really, yes, I'm talking about the right now, but I'm also deeply interested in uh, the modern white man or the modern man in philosophical or existential parlance. And so I'm really interested in trying to um, think through the ins and outs of what the Western white man has been since the Western piece of that or the white piece of that became a modifier or a signifier uh, that mattered. So in other words, the colonial contact uh, in the 15th, 16th centuries up to the present, I'm really trying to think through what, um, what's been going on with that. And so uh, it plays out in a few different ways. One, um, is with respect to whiteness studies specifically. So uh, whiteness studies is a big piece of the tone and tenor of my work. And there I'm trying to think through both the philosophical and the sociological um, implications associated with uh, not only racialization as a way to order the social world in a generic sense, but also how, like, what are the implications of particularizing uh, a white identity that has at times been particularized in the sense of, say, uh, the, when racial thinking was at its apex in the middle 19th century, like to be a white British person was kind of like the, the pinnacle well, white Irish folks and Celts were further down that ladder, whatever. And 
now all of that has kind of collapsed into one kind of amorphous white identity that means a lot and means a little at the same time. So to be white in contemporary, in the contemporary West, really, I, my first book focuses specifically on the U.S., but I would include much of Europe in this assessment. To be white today means to be uh, without race or without color in a lot of ways, whereas uh, in that 19th century model and earlier, to be white was to definitely have a particular kind of quality to it, and that quality was elevated in esteem and value, say, in the social world. I'm not uh, saying that uh, is how I'm looking at it myself. Um, and so I'm interested in both of those things, thinking about whiteness as it concerns a particular uh, social marker uh, of, like, I guess, positive value. By positive, I mean that there's something there, not positive in a moral sense. So that white as a uniqueness, white as sui generis, as we would say in the study of religion, over and against white as a non-entity or whiteness as a non-essence, an emptiness. And so um, that's uh, that, that basic paradox of white as having substance or value over and against white as being a signifier for lack of value or, or uh, identity quality uh, is a tension that permeates a lot of my work. Another uh, dimension of my work is deeply informed by um, hip-hop culture. And hip-hop, right now, for instance, I'm working on a book uh, – that I'm editing with Monica Miller and Anthony Penn, and it is about Kendrick Lamar and the construction of black meaning um, in the contemporary moment. So there we're, we're bringing together a group of folks who are interested in how uh, semiotic meaning gets produced, how uh, meaning in a, in a uh, valuative, valuative sense it's manufactured and uh, additionally hip hop for me and my work has been a, um, uh, it's been a wonderful hermeneutical intervention. That is, it shapes the outlook with which I hold my data and my ideas. It fundamentally shapes the trajectory of my work. And so I have, I have, specific research interest in the data of hip-hop, but I also am unapologetic about the way that a hip-hop sensibility informs my handling of other data, be it his history that is uh, different features of colonial contact or um, uh, what have you. And so hip-hop is the second big dimension of my work, and the last is really connected to the first two, which is existentialism or existentialisms and humanisms. So uh, we can talk more about what and when to use each of those terms, but in general, I am a, I am a thoroughgoing existentialist. I, I, and I mean that in the, I, I guess, uh, on some days it's of a Sartrean variety where I'm frustrated by the world and I want to um, I want to lash out in certain ways, 
Whereas in other, um, on other days, my existentialism is more of the uh, Richard Wright kind of variety, where Wright was, he maintained a kind of uh, righteous fury about the, the world's misgivings, but he wanted to do something about it. He wanted to uh, really kind of uh, apply political strategies and, and things of that sort to, to the world in order to try and make it more tolerable. So, uh, yeah, I, that's, I guess, a broad overview of the, the major themes that shape the work that I'm doing. Right. And so when I was introducing you uh, a few minutes ago, I, I sort of highlighted how unique it is to rope these things together. Uh, whiteness and hip hop, perhaps not so much, but um, to sort of be thinking through these ideas in terms of, you know, existentialism is usually often thought about in terms of our our limitations as as a species, you know, and how we bump up against them, but can't seem, you know, we can't seem to get through them or, or, or to transcend them. Um, and I find that, I just find that very, very powerful. So could you perhaps, uh, maybe it would be a good, um, good intro to talk about the major arguments that you make in, uh, in your book, White Lies, brilliant title, by the way. Thank you. Um, <laughs> really lovely. Um, I'm a connoisseur of book titles. Um, and so uh, what is, like, what is, how is racism, I guess we might say, how is our identity as white a part of American religion? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. That's, that's, our identity as white is a part of American religion. I'm going to answer that, uh, this last question first, because I'll forget it otherwise. It, it's a part of American religion because American religion is about the business of identity formation. That's, that's in a nutshell. It's, it's not quite so tautological as I'm presenting it now. Um, sorry, my dog is barking. Uh, it's, oh, it's cute. Don't worry. I need to stop. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so um, from my vantage point, theoretically, religion is about identity formation and process. So specifically, I maintain uh, the uh, some version of the position set forth by Charles Long, a scholar of religion who is uh, a long time, uh, still is, a uh, thinker, uh, historian of religion uh, based out of uh, the University of Chicago most of the, his career and then I think Syracuse for a while. Uh, but in any event, um, Long's position is that religion as a category is in fact, a thing, and, and I, by this I'm, I'm kind of speaking to the, a debate in the field of religion connected to whether religion is um, out there. Is it its own thing? Is it a real thing? Is it an experience with the divine? Is it substantive? Can we believe in it? Not God, but can we believe in the believing in God as a cohesive kind of totality? Or is it merely the sum total of our social construction. And my position following long is that religion emerges as a way to uh, orient ourselves in the world based on the tension that's produced when different sorts of people come into contact 
for more or less the first time or the first time in a critical, critically like quantitative uh, moment. And from my perspective, whether we're talking about, and this gets more specifically to the question of the book, White Lies, what I'm arguing there is that whiteness and theism, American theism specifically, but I would extend it to include uh, the major monotheistic traditions, all, all three of them, I would. That whiteness or a particularized racialization and theism more or less do the same work in the social world. They're about the business of demarcating you from me, us from them, etc., etc. And so White Lies is an effort to sketch out the process whereby religion unfolds on the American landscape. And what that looks like is not any kind of maintenance of a particular tradition, although there's definitely uh, certain traditions that are more um, likely to take hold on certain street corners than others, but it's not so much about the specific polity or theology of the tradition, it's about wearing that tradition as a badge of entry into uh, a marketplace. And I mean that in, in explicit economic terms, but I also mean it in more symbolic terms. And so Pierre Bourdieu is a theorist that I use a lot in White Lies because he, Bourdieu um, helps to um, think about the different ways that capital is usable. So it's one thing to be economically wealthy and to be able to walk into a store and purchase an expensive jacket. But it, there's, there are multiple sorts of capital that one can accrue. And so social capital is another. And so that social capital might not allow you to buy a new jacket, but it'll allow you to participate in certain activities that would then enable you to get the economic capital to buy the jacket, so to speak. And so I'm wanting to suggest that whiteness and theism on the American landscape or the American frontier really served as a kind of capital. Hmm. So that's part A to the book. Part B is really wrestling with uh, why is this capital necessary? Why is something like a, a myth of manifest destiny or American exceptionalism, why are these things so salient amongst white Americans? And what I'm arguing in that book is that there's a kind of, uh, uh, there's a, I know the big word I want to use is existential, but I'm looking for a more basic kind of uh, term. That white Americans have a, tend to have a big hole inside of their souls, essentially. There's something missing mm -hmm. that is at once, um, it, it is kind of like a broken engine in one sense, but on the other hand, the fact that it's broken is kind of what makes it tick in the way that it does. So, there's, there's, so in a philosophical register, we would talk about this as diremption or um, as some sort of existential strife. And this has been articulated, I would say, to this day best. This particular American sensibility has been articulated best by... Jean-Paul Sartre, 
That, that's my, my opinion. I'm not suggesting that Sartre was intentionally doing that, but that the themes and the uh, issues that Sartre is uh, interested in and interested in addressing are really beautifully mapped onto uh, white American existential concerns. And so that's the second piece of what I'm arguing in the, the book. And uh, so, hmm. yeah, I'll, I'll pause there. Yeah, so you, you use the, the word uncertain a fair bit um, and are sort of gesturing towards like an unwillingness to be vulnerable. Yeah, mm -hmm. is, there, is there some sort of like invincibility sort of being channeled into the way that this religion is enacted or these gods are thought of? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a posture of in invincibility, but there's not an actual invincibility, which gets right. to the, the existential paradox that I play with so much in the book. So uh, I, I define in the book whiteness as a racialized expression of a more fundamental inability to accept human limitations that are endemic to social life as the stuff of life that is um, uh, that we are limited. For instance, uh, my eyeglasses, they're new. And I, I, I currently am having a, a minor existential crisis because I, I, I cannot handle that I would have that my eyes would start to show their own limitations. But so that's one embodied example of the sorts of limitations that I'm talking about. And if we look at the history of the white West for at least the last 600 years, I think a fairly compelling case can be made that much of what arises as culture or, or Western culture, or that arises as technological innovation is geared towards the maintenance of those limitations or the overcoming of those limitations, which is where the, the interest, um, with mountaineering start, starts to get sparked as well. But as far as the book goes, uh, the point over that I try, the, the paradox rather that I try to play with and tease out in the book is that a concern over those existential limits, those uh, fundamental um, issues produces a kind of psychical uncertainty uh, and uh, anomi in a sociological sense or angst and anxiety that has to be channeled in some sort of way. And to talk in uh, like psychological terms, what I'm arguing is that the way that those, that, that frustration over uncertainty has been channeled has been highly, highly troubling. So one of the things that I, I begin the book with is I talk about the, the spectacle of lynching. And I, I, I didn't, I had complicated feelings with starting the book with lynching because lynching is one, it's, uh, it kind of, uh, it's so severe of a practice that it, I was afraid it would um, situate what I was interested in as being a, a project rooted in the concern over white supremacy or white supremacist organizations. And that's certainly a piece of the whiteness that I'm trying to articulate, but it's kind of a fringe. It's, it's the, the most salient uh, cutting edge of this 
sensibility, but it's not the, the bulk of who it is that I'm trying to uh, think about and talk uh, about and understand really. And so what I'm suggesting there is that these existential concerns that are really rooted in embodied concerns like failings of the human body, which is, I'm catching myself even now, like in framing some of what I'm talking about as failures, I'm, I'm playing into the mythology associated with the assumption amongst many white folks that things can be other than they already are anyway. Mm. Like so, so there's a beautiful and very famous, well, well-deserved famous uh, quote from W.E.B. Du Bois who uh, asks, as he's characterizing black American life, he asks, how does it feel to be a problem? And I'm in White Lies really trying to um, ask a, a related question. I'm trying to ask of white people, of myself, how does it feel to be a problem maker? We, we as white folks have for a long time constructed what it means to be a human as a problem. Does it suck that we die? Does, is, it, is it frustrating that we can't keep the people that we love from dying? Yes, absolutely, without question. But um, some of us have acted as if, if we would only find the right person to kill, that our lives might last longer. And so I start with lynching in order to give a real visceral, explicit example of that. So in the cases of lynching, there were nearly 5,000 that took place across the U.S. from about 1870 to 1970. And um, none of them were ever, uh, or rather, no federal legislation, no anti-lynching legislation was ever passed uh, to, to help stop it. And I mean, the question could be raised as to whether it would have been effective, but it, it says a lot that nothing was ever passed. Um, additionally, though, uh, what I suggest in the book is that there's something that happens in, in a kind of uh, classically religious kind of mode. There's a ritualistic quality to lynching. And I would say there's a ritualistic quality to uh, the destruction of black flesh in the United States as well. So whether we're talking about uh, a lynching that happened in 1921 in, as Cornell West would say, like gut bucket Arkansas, or whether we're talking about uh, Ferguson, Missouri and the, the murder of Michael Brown, or, and this is where it, the, I, I don't speak, uh, too much to this in the book, but it's an important piece of it, or whether we're looking at contemporary U.S. foreign policy uh, concerning drone strikes. The, there's something about the, the, the destruction of black and brown flesh that has a, a sociologically positive impact on white identity. Again, I'm not using that word positive to mean morally good. It's morally abhorrent but it, it has the effect of producing connectedness, community. And as a result of that sense of community, belonging, it, would, it plays out psychically as if you're the person who would be in the center of a literal group. So say some tragedy was uh, 
upon all of us and there was a group of 200 people. If you feel like you're on the edge of that group, you're gonna feel like you're in more danger than if you're the person in the center of that group. That's essentially what I'm arguing is happening uh, in, the, in the US with respect to white racial identity. Um, there's a third piece of it, which is the denial of this process taking place, but um, I'll stop there for, for right now. Well, that's interesting because I was just sort of thinking about the denial or rather the the spectrum of people might be on in terms of their awareness of their endorsement of some kind of violence, right? So many people would say, I think many, many people would say, well, of course I'm not racist. Of course my religion isn't <clears throat> functioning to oppress other people, right? Like that I think would be the immediate defense and i would understand that because most people haven't you know been ex been exposed to these sorts of ideas or theories before um but but i think there's definitely a spectrum and and there have been people who have said explicitly very explicitly you know, this was a part of god's plan like the narrative you use in the mm -hmm. book about george zimmerman yeah yeah you know mm -hmm. kills a young black kid for doing nothing right and and says it's a part of god's plan but we still, you know, and even people who don't necessarily practice religion regularly, um, these things are still subconscious in a sense in a wide variety, right? A wide variety of people. And, and we need to, we need to face and we need to like really just honestly look at how we might actually be on that spectrum and be living into the same ideas that people like George Zimmerman do actively. Yeah, that, that's a, a brilliant point that you're making. And I would uh, add to it, that that's why I, I also try and spend a lot of time uh, re-theorizing theism in the book. So a lot of what you're describing, uh, I would suggest, has to do with theism, which in the, in the book, I don't uh, define as belief in a higher power or... I. I don't explicitly define it as belief in uh, a, a social God or a sociological God as in like strength in numbers, although I do say that plays out. What I define theism as is belief in the utility of belief. That is mm. some, a, a psychical mechanism that enables this chronic denial. I mean, it is absolutely chronic. So uh, just for instance, and this is kind of a vulgar example because I don't have statistics in front of me, but there's very little room that can be made uh, for an argument that situates American Christianity, whether we're talking about uh, 19th century um, Presbyterians or 20th century Pentecostals or anything in between. American Christianity has been in so many ways the white man's religion. It has. And if we go back by the white man's religion, I mean it trades in the maintenance of social identity, particularly white identity, and that's what it's really about. But if we look at the history of religion, and this is kind of like a hackneyed kind of, that's what I mean by vulgar. It's, it's a base example because it's been popularized and kind of anesthetized. But uh, missionaries in the new world did awful, awful things. It, it, weren't, it, it wasn't just slave masters and slave drivers and slave traders who were being dastardly to uh, black and brown folks. 
Christian missionaries did quite a lot of harm um, uh, with uh, Diego de Landa, I think it is, who is one example, uh, who in contemporary Mexico, uh, what is now in the contemporary world considered Mexico, the uh, Veracruz Peninsula. He did awful things, awful things. Look at, I encourage folks who are listening to look it up. Um, but so in other words, the point I'm making is that religion has never been about the moral kind of maintenance that religious people tend to uh, think it is. So in the case of, uh, I, I get invited to talk to uh, white church communities, uh, not all the time, but a few times a year. And invariably, every situation whether it's a Baptist church or, again, a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church, the position is this is awful stuff that we're talking about. We want to get actively involved in doing something about it. Uh, and then the qualifier is, yeah, but we're different. And I'm interested in that denial. And I, I'm convinced that it's theism that enables that denial. Mm -hmm. Something about the pro projection of these psychical anxieties onto a realm out there enables a plausible deniability on the part of the believer. And I'm not interested in whether God is, exists or not. I, I am, but in this particular case, I, that's not my concern. My concern is to look at the functional behaviors of the folks that I'm talking about. And the behaviors can't be measured in terms of good intentions. The, the behaviors have to be measured in terms of uh, right action more concretely. And, and if we look at the historical record, it's not a very pretty picture. It's not. Now, on the flip side, I, I will also say, you say that you're interested in Sam Harris, for instance. Uh, um, the, the humanistic or the atheistic position has not actually... Um, look much better either as it concerns race, as it concerns uh, gender discrimination, as it, as it concerns patriarchy, and as it concerns racism, atheists have not fared any better. David Hume was a, a vicious racist just as uh, was um, Martin Luther. I mean, those are different contexts, of course, but uh, nevertheless, they had similar problems with respect to respecting women and respecting black and brown others. They did. And so um, I'm not wanting to suggest that there's an easy solution to this. I'm actually more um, motivated by an, an existential point, which is that we as humans are in this position where we're going to do harm regardless. And so the question becomes not so much one of justice or liberation but one of parity and equity like who is it that's on the receiving end of the harm that we're doing and are those numbers skewed are they stilted in ways that uh, might be um, cause for concern right and so what does it what might it look like to be able to move past this or I think what's involved in, in some sort of, I don't want to use the narrative of progress, right? But some sort of um, moving beyond this 
monolith of whiteness as it like inheres in our like deepest and most sacred beliefs. This, this means to recognize and become more comfortable with our limitations, with putting ourselves more on the margins, with uh, sort of, you talk a lot about learning how to die. What does, yeah. that, what does learning how to die actually mean? Like, what does that look like in real life? Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, the, I, I think about it in terms of letting go, in, in terms of lear, learning how to die. So that's, in the book, it's both a thematic way of packaging the notion of embracing uncertainty, but it, I also mean it in a couple of real or literal senses. I mean that, one, uh, a lot of the uh, atrocities that have occurred over the last five or 600 years with respect to uh, whiteness or white perpetrators or male perpetrators, I think is rooted in uh, concerns over human mortality. So I, I don't wanna ever be disconnected from that real visceral embodied concern. Uh, on the other hand, um, I in the book want to be real concrete as it concerns uh, social possibilities. In the case of uh, say chapter five in my book, I offer a case study where um, I am speaking specifically to white American Christians and I give them uh, a scenario wherein if in fact they want to be about the business of addressing whiteness then what the what will be required of them is to abandon all hopes of salvation so the the, the very notion of soteriology or salvation or and by extension if if through a different paradigm or, or like discursive paradigm, we could speak of this in terms of liberalism and notions of progress as well. I keep it at the existential level in the book, but the point is really the same. Like we have to get over this notion that there's a solution. Um, and if we're able to jettison that assumed solution, then we'll be more humane human in terms of our social relationships because it's really i mean think of it as, as an analogy if you're on a train and there's like a, a bomb on it or something but it's going slow you're going to jump off everyone's going to try and get out of the out of the way at the same time but that what if there's no way off i, I mean what if like we do harm as humans we do harm and the, the partic- what I call the particular perniciousness of whiteness is that we have for a very long time now done harm in a quest to do no harm. If we as white folks can start to address our behaviors and our relationships with ourselves and with others, then we would do well to come to terms with the way that we have to augment our assumptions about uh, something better over the hill. There's not. And so I ultimately, I frame this and I speak of it in terms of the death of whiteness. I think uh, uh, whiteness needs to die. And, and I say that it, it, when I first started to say it and, and write about it, 
I did it with a particular kind of melodramatic uh, intention. Uh, today, though, I believe it more so than ever, and, and, but with an important caveat. I do not think that white people need to die. Uh, I think that the thinking about ourselves and the situating of ourselves as white, as a, as a social practice, that needs to die. I, I think, and I don't know if we'll have time to talk about some of the current research that I'm doing, but I think I might just be onto something in a historical sense as well, because whiteness as an idea is two things. One, it is relatively new, and two, it is only an idea. And as a result, I, I think we can come a lot like whiteness in the U.S. context and in a de facto way in Europe for a very long time has meant a certain sort of social situativity. It's, meant, it's been a marker of where you are. And what happens in the U.S. is that poor working class folks get to tap into this in a way that it gets weaponized in a newfound way. Class is operative in many cases in Europe in ways that make it a slower kind of move. Neoliberalism has enabled and emboldened whiteness on the, on the European continent in, to look much more like the American context. And as a result, we're seeing these like, crypto and not so crypto fascist kind of regimes and populist movements uh, emerge more or less simultaneously. But in the US context, um, white folks have been able to address some of the psychical uh, wounds or some of the concerns over uncertainty by claiming this thing uh, in a way that has never actually addressed those concerns. If, you, uh, if you're struggling as a coal miner in West Virginia and you feel some sort of affinity to the coal miner parents and grandparents who have come before you, um, that's fine. Uh, However, like a concern over nativistic uh, racialized particularity is not going to address your economic concerns uh, or your uh, social ones either. Uh, so uh, I think that uh, whiteness as a means of addressing some of these issues historically, I think it's, I think it's simply a bad idea. It's never done the work that folks who are using it would assume that it is doing if given a critical like vantage point on their own actions. Um, but additionally, the costs are simply too high. Uh, so yeah, I think whiteness needs to die. And I, I think it's being tested as well. I, I do. Uh, so I play on that in the book, that whether like, the theme of death and the theme of whiteness dying over and against the potentiality of shifts in demographics and things of that sort. So, yeah. Right. So is, are, are a lot of the things that you were talking about, the crypto and not so crypto fascism, is this sort of movement happening across the world? Does this have to do with the fact that whiteness started to die? And there's sort of a, a desire to re to reclaim the the attempts at invincibility, right? To reclaim the power. That's a, yeah, that's a, a 
complicated question that I, I don't have the, the answer to, and it, it's constantly in flux. And of late, I have, um, as I'm sure many, many uh, of us are, I'm completely exhausted by thinking about um, the man who sits in the White House right now. Uh, I try and avoid the news specifically because of it. Um, but what I can say is that, uh, so right now we're just coming off in the U.S., we're coming off of uh, mourning the life and loss of George Herbert Walker Bush. George Herbert Walker Bush is the uh, former director of the Central Intelligence Agency, and he was a kind of do-nothing president who got to oversee stuff that other folks had already done. And that's, I mean, fine, he's, he was who he was. And now, in thinking about the death of whiteness, I'm, I like to imagine someone like George W. Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, up next to someone like Donald Trump. I see different things happening there. I see, I see explicitly xenophobic and racist calls uh, for like a battening down of the hatches in terms of white racial identity. I do. I see in someone like Trump and particularly his constituency concerns over uh, population rates, population control, all of these kind of dog whistles as it concerns explicitly racist kind of white supremacist postures. Yeah, all of that is true. But if we're thinking about white supremacy in a sociological way, that is like the ascendancy of the white man to this kind of like panoptic position in the world where uh, we as white men are moving the chess pieces of all of these like uh, lesser countries and things of that sort, George Bush foots that bill. He, he knows not to curse in public. He probably didn't make a habit of grabbing women on a daily or monthly basis, although he very well could have as well, I don't know. But my point is the kind of the veneer uh, is, I would say, in the case of Trump, taken off. Like the, the, the whiteness component of it is taken off. And I think what we're seeing in someone like Trump is an example of the way that explicit appeals to whiteness are going to intensify as the uh, overarching power of whiteness decreases. That's what I'm seeing. So that, that doesn't mean that the story is pleasant. Again, I'm not trying to tell a story that's bad that will become good. This is more a story about like humans who are to quote my, uh, my doctor father, Anthony Penn, humans are funky. And as funky uh, as we are, bad things are going to continue um, along with the good, along with the beautiful, along with the confusing. And um, I think what we're seeing now may not be the, the death pangs of whiteness, but it certainly it has a, a chronic illness. It has something that has it um, operating with a sense of urgency that it hasn't uh, beforehand. On the flip side, and this is, this is, I guess, the last thing I'll say on the point, the flip side, I also think often about the way that perhaps what's changed is the hermeneutical or the interpretive posture 
of many of us as white Americans. My guess would actually be that uh, women in, in mass, in bulk, and uh, black and brown folks in general have probably seen folks like George Herbert Walker Bush look a whole lot more like Donald Trump than uh, I might want to initially uh, imagine. But, like, I think as we're dealing in this, with this whatever is going on, uh, as it concerns American leadership, uh, domestically and abroad, I think we would do well to imagine that Trump is not actually as exceptional a case as we seem to situate him in our minds. Mm -hmm. He probably looks a lot more like the folks who have come before him than we would want to imagine. Before we go, do you want to tell us a little bit about the, the new book that you're working on? Yeah, so there are a couple that I'll mention. One just came out. I'll actually, I have a copy of it here. Oh, good. This is uh, my newest book, co-authored with Monica R. Miller, uh, here in Method as Identity, Manufacturing Distance in the Academic Study of Religion. Um, we have tried to... Uh, forge a conversation that we thought had not really happened to this point in the academic study of religion, which is, the, uh, as a brief overview, there is something called the critical posture in the academic study of religion, which uh, maintains an intense hermeneutic of suspicion as it concerns the category of experience, and that is religious experience. If you tell me that you have had lunch with a uh, group of angels and they have directed your your behaviors for the next few weeks and i i might want to believe you because it might be an interesting story but it doesn't necessarily mean i should believe you and so the critical position is one that maintains suspicion with respect to uh the category of experience but uh just as i was talking about in in white lies how whiteness and theism are kind of uh more alike than they are different, that is their uh, identification strategies. Um, the same can be said of gender, the same can be said of race, the same can be said of nation, the same can be said of origin, in fact. And so, in other words, uh, if we're going to be skeptical of the category of uh, experience as it concerns religion, that is, I saw a ghost or I saw an angel today. No, no, as a good scholar, I'm going to be skeptical of that. If we maintain that position, which I think there's a lot of reasons we should, uh, it, it forces us to also be as equally skeptical of claims to identity uh, with regard to race, gender, and things of that sort. And that has deep implications if in this moment where I don't know if we're we're still in the Me Too moment or not. I, I would hope we, that there's still energy surrounding it. But it, as it concerns equity, as it concerns justice and questions of uh, fairness, and as I would say, parity in the social world, um, we, that creates a paradox. Uh, and so if we're forced to be skeptical of one experience, we ought to be skeptical of all of them. Well, what happens when that the experience is not about angels, but is about sexual trauma 
or is about uh, racial violence? Are we supposed to be skeptical of uh, claims to racism, for instance, uh, when uh, phenomenologically, that is like as the, the issues present themselves to our eyes, uh, racism is uh, somewhat hard to quantify. And I mean, a classic kind of uh, joke surrounding the study of racism is that uh, the problem with the study of racism is that there are no racists. There, I mean, like staunch white supremacists will still want to sometimes posture as like not racist out of, I, I don't know why, but the book tries to maintain the, the critical posture, but forge a conversation with the study of black religion. And so uh, my training is specifically in African-American religious studies. And so I use interdisciplinary methods to do the work that I do on whiteness and existentialism and things like that. And it, so if what I've said is true of race, then it suggests that the critical position has a problem even with the very framing of who I am as a scholar. That is, I don't study religion, I study black religion, or in my case, I study white religion. The critical position is to be skeptical even of those sorts of qualifiers. And so then I'm out of a job. I'm being somewhat facetious, but the point of the book is to forge a conversation amongst those two camps in the field that really hasn't happened yet. And so I think uh, Dr. Miller and I are both very enthusiastic uh, about uh, the prospects of the book um, forcing some, some conversations that we hope to have uh, and that have been a long time coming. And then lastly, uh, with uh, Monica Miller again and with uh, Anthony Penn, we are in the, the, uh, the, we are in the uh, last uh, kind of machinations of this book on Kendrick Lamar. So it's called Kendrick Lamar and the Making of Black Meaning. And so it should be out, uh, I hope, some, sometime in 2019. But uh, so fingers crossed for that. Yeah, that's exciting. Kendrick Lamar has like got quite a bit of traction in religious studies recently, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. He... He, in his own work, in a kind of Paul Tillich way, it, it can be easily digested and thought about with the tools of religion. But he also has been uh, very eclectic uh, with respect to the, the specific cohesive religious traditions that he uh, shows sort of some uh, affinities for. And so he's doing a lot uh, for us in the way of energizing interest in uh lesser known black religious traditions like the Hebrew Israelites, the way that he was uh, appropriated by the Black Lives Matter movement to be the kind of composer of uh, anthems that would be used uh, in the ways that they have is really fascinating. And there's, a, there's a whole lot of different ways that Lamar is deeply fascinating to the study of religion. And so we're hoping that folks will be interested in that book. So. Yeah. Good. Um, good. Okay. So people can find you at your really smart blog, shadesofwhite.org. Is that correct? 
Yes, and I need to write more on it. But yes, shadesofwhite.org is a place where you can find more information, other stuff that I've done, talks I've given. And um, I'm also on Twitch. Shades of White is the easiest way to find me, whether that's on Twitter or Instagram. I'm uh, recently not on Facebook, and I'm enjoying enjoying that. Uh, So find me on Twitter and Instagram or at shadesofwhite.org. All right. Yeah. Lovely. And everybody, you know where to find me all the time. I'm Stephanie Rupert everywhere. Um, Christopher, this has been uh, really, really lovely. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on your next book. So thank you so much. Great. Well, thank you again, Stephanie, for the invitation. It's been a pleasure and uh, I look forward to next time. Thank you.